This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with author, minister, and professor of theology, James Brian Smith. But don't let those titles intimidate or scare you off. Jim is down to earth and takes us on a journey of life in the kingdom of God. Jim shares about serving as Dallas Willard's teaching assistant and how their friendship shaped his spiritual life along with men like Rich Mullins and Richard Foster. Then we dive in to the good and beautiful series he authored, which encourages the follower of Jesus to live out the gospel change in our daily lives by understanding who God is, what it means to live in the kingdom of God on earth as an individual and in community, and who Jesus created you to be. This conversation was an absolute delight for me, and I believe it will be for you too. Now, through Saturday, December 10th, 2022, you can enter to win the four books set in the Good and Beautiful series. Visit graceenoughpodcast.com slash good for details. You can also receive 30% off and free shipping on all good and beautiful titles at ivpress.com from now through December 20th with the code ENOUGH22. That's 30% off at Ivy Press using the code ENOUGH22. Good morning, Jim. Welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit with me. I am thrilled to have this conversation with you. I was telling you a little bit before that uh, a dear friend of mine, well, a dear friend of my husband's really, Josh, he married us. He is who introduced me to your work. And some of our questions are going to come from him today. And so I know he'll be thankful that I gave him a little shout out here on the podcast. All right. So Josh is with us in question form. That's right. Okay. (laughs) Let's start with a little bit about your spiritual journey, because you are highly influenced through personal friendships with people like Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and even Rich Mullins, I heard on my friend Eric Nevin's podcast. So share a little bit of your faith journey with us and just how they kind of play into that. Yeah. So um, I grew up uh, a Methodist. Uh, we, we went to church Me a few too. times a year, not real active. But I mean, I had an understanding of church, but I didn't really have a relationship with God. And that that came after my senior year of high school. And I just there was a longing inside of me. I was, I was yearning for something. And found my way to reading the Gospels, and a guy mentored me through that and led me to Christ. So my my life really changed uh, big time. And then within a year, I transferred to Friends University, and that's where Richard Foster was teaching. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he'd written a, a very important book. I just <laughs> he was a guy I, I had for class. And wow! But I knew right away something was different about him. That he mm. he had an authentic relationship with God. Like he knew God, he didn't just talk about God. Hmm. And I was very drawn to that. 
And then practicing the disciplines from Celebration of Discipline, his most famous work, um, I really took to those things. So solitude, prayer, fasting, silence, worship, all these, these practices. And I was a new enough Christian that I just assumed everybody did those all the time. I didn't, I didn't know that it was weird because that was, I was, uh, I've been a Christian for a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when I'm doing these practices, it was, it was like, okay, I assume everybody does this. Right. Then I went to seminary and went, oh no, actually very few people do do these practices. I mean, we go to church and read the Bible and maybe read some books that are helpful, but, but Richard's influence was, was massive. And then I came back after seminary, I was pastoring in a local church and Richard was starting a ministry called Renovare. And so, um, that brought together he and I and Dallas Willard and some others as we were building that. And I just got to spend some time with Dallas. Mm. And then Dallas was teaching a course at Fuller called Spirituality and Ministry. It got really popular and had like 40, 50 students in it. And he said, I need a teaching assistant. And I, I had gone to Fuller for my doctorate. And so I knew the Fuller people Dallas knew me. They said, let's invite Jim. So what that meant, Amber, was I got to spend the next seven years as his TA. So every summer I can't imagine. Yeah, it was fantastic because I'd spend two weeks and basically just watching him teach eight hours a day for two weeks. And I was there supposedly being helpful, but I probably wasn't um, to any of those students, but I I don't know about that. I was learning an enormous (laughs) amount. Um, and so in that time with Dallas, and then he and I got to do a lot more things together. That was huge. You mentioned Rich Mullins. Um, Rich, for those who don't know him, Christian singer, songwriter, he, yeah. uh, most people might know Awesome God or something or Step by Step, right. Sing Your Praise to the Lord. But anyway, he, he came to friends. Uh, he wanted to get a music education yeah. degree. And it was a very strange set of circumstances that led him to friends. But uh, we, we met, became friends. He lived in our attic apartment for two and a half years. And um, that friendship was really highly impactful. So I was writing a book called Embracing the Love of God, and he was writing an album that would be called Brother's Keeper. And so that was a really fruitful time that we had tremendous interaction. He influenced me a great deal, and certainly in the area of the love of God. Yeah, well, and speaking of Rich, like I've read the book that you wrote, which, I mean, would you refer to that as somewhat of his biography? I call it a devotional biography. Um, okay, I mean, I, I, I remember reading it in college. And so it's so crazy to, yeah, it, it's just neat to, to think that you are so close to him. Yeah. I mean, he, Rich, I, I think the rich that I knew wouldn't, would not have liked a traditional biography. Yeah. He was a person who said, look, don't, my life is not what's important. Um, he, he pointed people to God. So that's why the title of the book is an arrow pointing to heaven, because that's kind of what Rich tried to do is say that I'm broken and imperfect, but but, you know, but God is love. God is great. God is mm. awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I just call it a devotional biography. Well, so tell me this, too, because I think about if I sat as a T.A. under Willard, I would be in so much. I don't even know what I would do because this is this is me. Seriously, my husband will send me a teaching from Dallas Willard now, you know, one that's on YouTube. And I can only listen to like five minutes at a time because I have to like stop and process for so long. There's so much information in literally like five minutes and it's so level information. I think that's probably the gift that you gave to the students. Like, well, back up, back up. <laughs> like, let me help you break this into chunks. Or yeah, did you well, just it, feel like that too? 
<laughs> well, no, I felt like that as well. And, um, but you're right about the students because they were so intimidated by Dallas. Oh, that they would come up to me. They weren't intimidated by me. Right. So they would come up to me during break times and say, Hey, what does he mean when he says this? And for the first couple of years, I would have to just be honest and say, I don't know. No, I, I don't know yet, but um, let's keep learning. So I, I think I was probably only helpful to the students probably around year five when I started to get a basic grasp of what, because then when they would come and say, what does he mean by the kingdom of God? What is he, what's Mm -hmm. Dallas definition of, of heaven or whatever. And, and then I couldn't say, okay, because it takes a long time to learn his vocabulary. Yes. That's the thing that I really picked up is it, he says a word and then there's a traditional way of understanding that word, but for him, it means something different until you learn his vocabulary, his whole view doesn't really make sense. But once you do, it hangs together really well, but you're right. It takes a long time. Well, and that's a good question. When it comes to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, I know that my view on that has begun to shift probably over the last three years. Um, It sounds like your view of that was probably very well established by some of your mentors. And so when you think about the kingdom of heaven, how would you describe it? It's I, I, the simplest way is to say it's the with God life. Uh, it's, it's God with us. The, the kingdom of God is evident even in the Old Testament. So when we read, and God was with Abraham, or God was with David, or God was with Esther, or whatever, um, that's kingdom. So it's an interactive relationship with God, where God is the king, and we are under that lordship. And um, that's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because we're saying, I want to live in that interactive relationship with God. And that here and now, people. right? Here Not just later. Absolutely here and now. Yeah. So, yeah. So Jesus talked about the kingdom over a hundred times. In fact, I have an, uh, an exercise I have my students do every year where they, they have to use some Bible software and then print out every time in the gospels that Jesus talks about the kingdom. And it's mm-hmm. so eye opening for them because they're like, I, I, I love that day in class because they walk into the classroom and their eyes are big. And they're like, I, I had no idea he talked about the kingdom so much. Wow. It's, he talked almost exclusively about the kingdom. All of us, nearly all the parables are the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is this. Um, and then his teachings. And, and so it's kind of surprising how few of us actually really understand the kingdom. And then the students will say, how come we never hear sermons about this? How come we haven't heard about this? And then that's a whole nother teaching to get to how we've gotten to that place. But um, yeah, it's central. It's a central to, to Dallas's teaching for sure. It makes me want to come be in your classes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I need to move to Kansas. I mean, <laughs> I'm actually fairly serious about that. Um, most people <laughs> listening probably know that she's being serious <laughs> because it's true. I want to be a student of that. And it's not easy to find. It's taught very little. Um, there is a pretty active Renovari community in my area. Okay. And, um, you know, I have thought like that would be a good place for me to mm-hmm. really plug into for that reason. So that's a whole other conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so before we move into talking about a certain series of books that you have written, which is the Good and Beautiful series, Josh did want me to ask you, like, what is one of your favorite or maybe the most memorable time that you have with Dallas? There's, I'm sure there's a million. There's a million. So um, it's really hard to to narrow that down. Um, You know, one of the things, and and you mentioned this, Henry, because you've listened to him teach, 
and he's so brilliant and wise and deep. And you think, oh, wow, this guy is just this intellectual and very intimidating. But actually, he was really funny and fun to be around. So one of those years I was a TA for him, we were in Colorado Springs and they put Dallas and I up in the, in the house. It was at a Christian high school and it was some faculty's house. And it was kind of a strange house. There was weird artwork around the house. There was a three-legged cat. That was strange. Yeah. So there was a lot that we were adjusting to, but uh, so yeah, we took care of the cat and, and stayed in this house. And, uh, but one night we, we came home and he was tired from teaching all day. And he said, I, sometimes I like to just watch TV to unwind and get, help my brain slow down. And I said, okay. So this was back in the day that, you, you know, you, you had to go up and change the channel on the TV. Oh yes. You're, you're really aging yourself here, Jim. You're really yes. aging oh, I know. yourself. This is, this is the mid nineties. And anyway, so, um, he comes in and he, he'd gotten into his, he took off his dress pants. He put on these like, um, khaki shorts and he had a, a, a white t-shirt on and um and he, he kept for some reason his his dress socks and wingtips so you picture that so it's a very odd thing that he walks into the room and we're watching this nature show and then all of a sudden he goes let's see what else is on and he turns and the, he turns the channel to it was a spanish channel where they were doing sort of some like salsa dancing mm-hmm. and so these people are they're dancing up on the stage you know sping, singing in spanish and Dallas starts dancing. He starts dancing with, with his dress socks with and his, his dress wing socks, wingtips, Bermuda. Yeah, yeah, it just it was a very and he, and he knew it was funny. He turned back and looked at me and laughed, and we just laughed out loud. Oh, and that it. moment was was spectacular because uh, you know it, he showed me that that holiness and hilarity can go together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's beautiful, right? I know um, a pastor who had a huge influence on me. He did a lot of special needs ministry when I was in Kentucky, and I worked under him for a while. And he had this picture, one of the famous pictures of Jesus, but Jesus had a party hat on. (laughs) And some people, um, and actually Brennan Manning was one of his, he knew him and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth. But anyway, so very similar to what we're talking about, a lot of the same influences. Yeah. And some people would get so frustrated with him with that. But he mm-hmm. would say almost exactly what you said. No, no, those coexist. Yeah. Jesus knows how to have a good time and be holy. Yeah. Uh, and it stuck with me. It still sticks with me because it's true. I mean, it's just so true. And we put God in a box and God's not a boring God. No, I mean, in fact, in Divine Conspiracy, one of the more shocking lines is where he says, God is the most joyous being in the universe. Mm. And I read that with that's a part of the curriculum I do with my students. And when they when they come across that, it really throws them. they'll say things I've never thought of God as joyous. I I assume think of him as lightning bolts. Yeah. He's angry. He's upset. He's chewing antacids, just putting up with us. He's, but the idea Mm. of these most joyous being in the universe, that's, that's one to wrestle with a bit. That sure is. That sure is. This episode is brought to you in part by beyond ordinary women ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership at bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, 
current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, let's talk about um, the work that you have done with the Good and Beautiful series. I want to kind of walk through, I mean, the last book, I I think it's the last book, Good and Beautiful You is the one that just came out, which we'll probably talk a little bit about how that came about. But the first one is the Good and Beautiful God. And you begin with, you know, the path to spiritual transformation begins with what we actually think about God. So what are some of those common false thoughts? I think you just mentioned one where we think he's just this angry, chewing ant acids kind of God um, that we we tend to have about God. And then what are some of those truths that sometimes we miss or we just, we diminish them a bit in order to think about the angry God? Yeah. Just as a preface to the, to the question, um, in, in chapter nine of the divine conspiracy, Dallas, it's called the curriculum for Christ likeness. And I read that literally off of his printer before it was published. And I was so blown away by, because he lays out a blueprint for what, what would a curriculum look like? And um, I said, well, when are you going to write that curriculum, Dallas? And he said, well, I'm a philosopher. I don't write curriculum, but he said, you do, Jim, you've been writing curriculum for Renovara. You've been writing curriculum. He said, that's, you do it. Why don't you go do it? And I love it. When I started my approach, if I thought, okay, well, how would I create a curriculum for Christ likeness? Mm. It would be, well, we just do the disciplines. You know, I teach them how to do the disciplines right. And yeah. if they did that, they would transform. So I field tested a, a couple of versions of that curriculum at my church. And um, I learned right away that it wasn't making anybody more Christ like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I went, okay, I've got it. This isn't working. Why isn't it working? And then I started to pay attention. And as I listened, I started hearing people who had really toxic God narratives Mm. and over and over, I was picking up on that. And then I went back and reread that chapter. And Dallas says in chapter nine, the Bible conspiracy, he says, the first thing you must do in a curriculum of Christ likeness is lead people to the good and beautiful God that Jesus knew. Oh, And I literally called Dallas up and I read him that sentence. I said, did you mean that? And he sort of laughed and said, of course, Jim, I wrote it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mean it. I realized as soon as I said it, it was a dumb question. But um, I said, wow, you could have been more, like said that more. because <laughs> Oh, and he's like, and then know, he challenges you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just, it, it, I mean, if, if that's, a, that's an important line. I mean, the, mm. most, the first thing you have to do. So that's when I went back. And that's where the good and beautiful God came from was I listened to people's narratives about God. And these are Christians. Oh, yeah. And I started picking up things like God's an angry judge who's poised to punish us. Um, God is a distant deity who doesn't really interact with us or, Mm. um, or, you know, so I I started picking up on on a lot of these, these narratives about God. So yeah, so really, the, the primary one, the most common one is that God is an angry judge who's poised to get us. He's he's ready to punish us for our sins. There was a study done at Baylor. It's an older study now, but uh, they revealed that 38% of American Christians think that. So it's nearly four in 10 of of Christians. You say, what's God like? They'll they'll give you some version of God. The father is mean. Jesus is nice, but God, the father, he's mad at us. He's still mad at us, even after the cross and all that sort of thing. 
So that's really where that came from. And I have to be honest, when I was working on the curriculum, I didn't think the Good Meaningful God would be the most significant um, part of the series. But uh, it, certainly if you look at book sales, it is, it's far and away, it's the two times. The I, other I get that, Jim. I get that. Yeah. Like I get that having been a Christian for, well, I don't know how old am I now? 42 or 43. I don't even know how old, when do you stop counting? Like, I don't know. I stopped <laughs> counting like four or five years ago. Good for you. <laughs> and so it's been 25 years, I guess. And I catch myself in that rut at times still and, and going back and saying, but this God was actually begging Israel to come and be with them. It wasn't because he was just angry with them. He wanted them. He knew it was better with him. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Even in, in what we call the Old Testament, the, that idea of, of uh, steadfast love has said in the Hebrew mm. is dominant. It runs through the Psalms. It runs through so much of the story, but we yeah. tend to pick up um, that, that the, the angry judge part. And, you know, those narratives, if they're formed, what I've learned is if we, they form early, they, they form without our awareness that it's happening. Yeah. We pick them up when we're kids and so forth and um, it's teenagers. And, but once they're in there, it's very hard to change them because the way our minds tend to work is that we, we get an idea and then it just remains unexamined until life goes badly. And then we begin to think what's maybe, maybe my thinking's wrong, but it's, and, and the longer that you hold those narratives, the harder it is to, to change them. Yeah. Well, and I will say oftentimes like brain science even has proven this, you know, I mean, right. we get tracks in our brain and the more you say something to yourself over and over again, the deeper those tracks get, it's just like a car running over the same muddy track over and over and over again. And so to undo that takes a lot of intentional work to undo that. Well um, so I, again, I, I could probably talk to you forever, but I do want to make sure that we also talk about some of the other books in the series. And the second one that you wrote was The Good and Beautiful Life. And in that one, you really lay out these false notions of happiness and success. And wow, isn't that prevalent in the Western world? Probably prevalent in a lot more than just the Western world. But what are some of the narratives that we that that we see Jesus really replace with this notion of success in the kingdom of God? Yeah, well, the second book, Good Me for Life, that you mentioned is based on the Sermon on the Mount. So, and, and I often say to my students, you know, this is the greatest talk, greatest greatest sermon mm -hmm. um, given by the greatest teacher who ever lived. So we ought we ought to pay attention to it, and surprisingly, we don't um, very mm -hmm. often. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount's daunting and it seems too hard. Um, Dallas would often joke, people read it and think, wow, Jesus is meaner than Moses, you know, because Moses just said, don't kill anybody. Jesus is like, don't be angry. You know, Moses <laughs> says, well, don't commit adultery. Jesus is like, well, actually don't lust. So uh, it, it, it can be read in that way. But I, I try to stress that that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is the master of, of, of understanding what really matters and what matters is our heart. So that's why he's He's always, he was critical of the Pharisees because they were about external practices and not the heart. And the Sermon on the Mount really is about that. It's looking at, you know, what is it that is happening inside your heart? Mm. And he, he just, he understands that he understands what anger is and what lust is and why we lie. He understands why we want to retaliate and why we want to judge. 
um, why we want to put confidence in wealth and and why we worry. I mean, so I've, I've walked through a bunch of the sermon right there. So it's a, it's really a master teaching. And I, I try in the book to lift up the, the false narratives that are surrounding us. And then the true narratives that come straight from Jesus in that sermon. I know. Well, and you dig into it. I mean, I just think as a common person, it can be, it is challenging. It's challenging to know the nuance of what Jesus is saying, because you really have to know the whole character of Christ. For example, you go back to when you were in college and you read, or maybe you were a senior in high school um, and you started reading the gospels. I mean, what the Sermon on the Mount means to you and your understanding of it now compared to that first time, like it's hard to even explain, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, it's very hard when you just, if you read it at face value, it seems uh, well, what Martin Luther called the impossible ethic. Like there's no way anyone could live this out, mm. but, but, and we talked about the kingdom earlier. Um, I, oh, here's something I say constantly to my students as we study this is to say, you have to add those three little words in the kingdom mm. to understand. Cause when Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry in the kingdom. You can do that. Mm. Therefore, I tell you, bless those who curse you in the kingdom. I can do that because the kingdom is God's power, God's provision, God's protection. Uh, all the things that I need have been established in the kingdom. So if I'm living in the kingdom, these become, it's a possible ethic now because I can in the kingdom not have to use anger. Outside the kingdom, anger is probably going to be a tool I'm going I'm to use. Something goes wrong. I, I want control. I'm going to use anger. Yeah, Anger actually doesn't help anything. So uh, but in the kingdom now, I can approach things differently. And that's the, that I think that's the main reason people stay away from is they don't understand. If you don't understand what the kingdom is, then the sermon just looks impossible. Mm. And so when you, when you go on to think about the kingdom, this back and forth, you know, this interaction with God constantly, is that what you point your students back to is when that temptation arises, you have to remember that you are basically practicing the presence of God. He is with you. You are back and forth with him. Like, how do you get them to interact in that way? Exactly. Well, we, we break it down and say, okay, let's, let's talk about the last time you were angry. So that right now, if you were my student in class, I'd say, okay, Amber, think of a time more recently when you got angry. Yeah. Yesterday. (laughs) Right. And then we talk about, okay, what was that about? And then we unpack and I explain how anger is unmet expectation mm-hmm. and fear. So yeah. this unmet expectation and that, you know, I mean, somebody blew me off at lunch. They said, we're going to have lunch and they didn't show up. Okay. That's unmet expectation. I thought you'd be there, mm. but then the fear is what drives it because the fear in then is, okay, that friend didn't show up for lunch. Maybe they don't think very highly of me. Oh, um, yeah. They don't, they're, my time's not, they don't valuable care about me. They don't yeah. care about me. They, so um, and if you learn later that your friend was got in hit by a car and that's why they didn't miss lunch, now you wouldn't be mad at them at all, right? So mm-hmm. it's the expectation is the same. It's just you don't you take away the fear. And so the fear is I, I can't control unmet expectations. They're gonna happen. That's right. I'll have 50 today. So, but I can control how I respond to that because if I'm operating out of a position of fear, then I'm thinking, oh, I can use anger. Watch this. Anger is going to help me make this right. Doesn't. But if I say, no, actually, that friend didn't show up. And maybe they didn't show up because they, they don't think highly enough of me. Mm-hmm. I'm still okay in the kingdom. Yeah. I'm not, the kingdom's not in trouble. I'm not in trouble. 
God is with me. I'm significant to God. Mm. Uh, that's their thing if they if they don't do that. So whatever it is, someone dings up your car, it's just a car. You know, you, you can, it's just that that's what you, you can work on. Is right. And it's putting drives. things in their proper place. Yeah. It sounds like as well. Like, yeah, it's a car. It's unfortunate that it happened. But what is the big picture here? Right. Exactly. And now, yeah. and because remember, I said, God's the kingdom is, is provision and power and protection and so forth. So I can re- now I can really rely on kingdom provision to say, okay, well, that's just a car and I'll try to get it repaired. If I can, I'll re- whatever, I'll look for provision to help that. Maybe mm-hmm. God will help me find an, a good mechanic and God will help me be able to pay for that repair or whatever it is. Um, it, it's just a different understanding. And you take away the fear and boy, a lot goes away. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. I mean, I've been really trying to practice not separating, you know, my, my life with God and everything else, which is exactly what you're talking about. And I guess I didn't realize, um, how prevalent that is in the lives of Christians until I recognized that I was doing it myself. Yeah. And then I started paying attention and I'm like, wow, we really do separate yeah. our lives from God. And it's like, no, <laughs> that is yeah. the kingdom, right? Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So in the good and beautiful community, you really talk about this kingdom work and how it interacts with, you know, just what we do in our community. Mm-hmm. Flesh that out for us a bit, because we see that so much right now in our culture where it seems like the two rarely coexist, that we can be social justice oriented and kingdom oriented, but they're really both the way of God if we think about it. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, that that book I felt was important because um, we are designed to be in community and the, Mm -hmm. the church is still God's best arrangement for God's people. And, but it's hard. Like church is hard. I mean, I remember Dallas once joked that someone said, why do you go to to church Dallas? And he said, well, Jesus said, we need to learn how to love our enemies. And um, (laughs) I'm bound to find a few there. At least I can practice it, you know? So human interaction communities are hard. And, and I, I've recognized that I, I've always been in the local church. I, I was ordained. I was, I served full-time in in a local church for three years, but I mean, and I, but for the last 27 years, I'm still been, I'm a teaching pastor at a church. So I love the church and, uh, and it's hard. Community is really hard. So I I thought, how do you live a kingdom life in this community? What's that going to look like for, Mm. for Christians? And then if we are living in community, it means we're going to be generous. We're going to be forgiving. We're going to learn how to, how to stay together when we disagree um, and again, all those things are possible in the kingdom. Outside the kingdom, uh, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. It's going to be really hard. So that's that's the origin of that. Something that Josh had asked was really about, like, how does being virtuous translate more than just, like, how is it more than just being nice or um, just being calm and peaceful? What is a virtuous life beyond those few things or life in the kingdom? How is that more than just being nice and calm and peaceful? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Way to go, Josh. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's really significant because if you look at like uh, the history of, of ethics and, and philosophy from 
Socrates, Plato on uh, all the way through up through the centuries with the great the great thinkers in morality and virtue. There's a lot of discussion about like what's the right thing to do. Like like Kant mm-hmm. would say the categorical imperative. What's the right thing to do here? And always do that right thing. Or utilitarians are saying, what's the most good I can do with my actions? Oh, um, yeah. And so we're, we're, we're asking all these questions that really are more external. But for Jesus, the, the answer to the question, who, who is a truly good person? It's a person whose heart is pervaded by agape love. Mm-hmm. And, and love is to will the good of another person. He, so many of his, when you understand that, so many of his teachings make more sense. Yeah. He, was, he was not interested um, the Pharisees were very interested in, in right behavior externally. And so um, there's that scene where he's at the Pharisee's house for dinner and um, a woman comes in and she, she dumps the oil on his feet. And she's a woman who wouldn't have been welcome in, in, at all in this setting for various reasons. We don't know all of them, but women weren't really thought of as, as humans. I mean, there are as fully significant valued people, but Jesus takes that moment to teach and say, um, look, I came into your house and you, you didn't offer to wash my feet. You didn't, you know, but here's this person and she came in and she did that act of, of love and, and respect and service. And so he's really about the heart. He's always about yeah. the heart. So that's when you think about virtue or right actions or being kind or so forth. It really is. Where's your heart? Cause you can do, um, what is it? The greatest treason is the right thing for the wrong reason. It's you, you, you can do a right action, but have the wrong, the wrong heart. Like the, yeah, the, fair, the the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I mean, the tax collector, the Pharisee's like, I fast, I pray, I give alms, I do all these great things. And and yet he's his heart is far from the That's whole right. thing. So really it's it's back to the heart. Oh, whew. and it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's worth it. It, it is, is worth it. But um, it does require like you, I mean, a lot of intentional work and slowing down and taking the time to engage with the God of the universe, um, mm-hmm. but it is worth it. Well, so you end this series with the good and beautiful you. And I love that you said, you know, I was finished. I was finished. And then circumstances happened and this book came into play. And so tell us a little bit about why you added this last book and what was going on in your life? Because it sounds like this one was the hardest one to write. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, it was. It was. So, yeah, I mean, I'd written the the first three books and they came out over three consecutive years. And and I assumed when, that it was a complete trilogy. I was there was needed. No more was needed. But I was in England and um, a friend of mine there who uses the books in various ministry settings. He said to me, um, the series has been super helpful. I've used it in churches. People love it. It's great. Thank you, Jim. Love hearing that. <laughs> but, then he right. said, but then he said, hey, but no, I, I think you're missing a book. And I was like, okay. And he said, um, the good and beautiful you. And I said, tell me why, Joe. And he said, because just like I remember, I talked about how I discovered people had really toxic God narratives. He said, I've, I've discovered people have really toxic self narratives. Okay. And, um, and he said, I, he said, you just can't plow around that. And if, people have these views of that's who they are. Um, you, you really can't move forward and grow and develop and into a healthy life. And I thought, wow, he's absolutely right, but I'm not at a place to do that. And so actually when he said that, uh, I, the ministry work that I was doing had really expanded and was super successful, which you would think is a good thing. But I learned mm-hmm. that the, the downside of success 
and I think success is much harder on our souls than failure. So all of these wonderful things were happening. And um, I just, inside, I was, I was just dying because I, I wasn't, I was focused on the wrong things. Yeah. So for me, I was focused on like keeping the ministry going and keeping the successes happening and all the stuff that can happen to a lot of people who are right. frankly in ministry, where you begin to think this is what's more important. important. And, and we need yeah, bigger I'm, I'm and bigger and we got to keep getting be, better. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm doing all this work for God. I don't need to actually be with God. I don't need to, oh. to, to develop my, I don't need to care for my own soul. I need to, you know, I'm, I'm crushing it in, in, in this oh. ministry side. So, um, yeah. So when I began to realize, wow, I need to make some changes. Um, and I did, and it was in that process that I was able to go, oh, okay, I've got to care for my soul. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, the place where I went and I did some, uh, I did some intensive counseling work. It was a week long program and the place was called restoring the soul. And it was there. And I didn't even, frankly, uh, to be honest, I didn't pay attention to the name of the place until I was done. And I walked out and went, oh, that's what you were doing. God, I, I haven't been taking care of my soul. Wow. So after that, that's when I thought, I think I'm ready to write this book now. And the book really, the, the thread that runs through the book is the idea that you have a soul. It's very needy. And all of the needs that your soul, you're, you're built with factory loaded needs, all of them can only be met in Christ. Yeah. And getting rid of a lot of those toxic narratives, right? That we believe yeah. about ourselves. What's the difference between soul care and self-care. Yes. Self-care is really popular now, but I think it's popular because we know we're desperate for soul care. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. I think we just don't have that language. I mean, we use the word soul everywhere. We're talking about soul food, soul music, soul mates, (laughs) but, but we don't think about, well, what is my soul? It's that thing that's inside all of us that, that um, animates and integrates the person that we are. And it involves our bodies because we're in soul bodies or embodied souls. I'm really careful in the book never to talk about the soul apart from the body because mm. we are embodied creatures. The bodies are, our bodies are beautiful things God's designed us to have. And um, where we're, that's where we live and we will have resurrected bodies. But um, yeah, the, but the self is sort of a, a 20th century construct. It's an idea that came about in the 20th century as, as I would le- learn in all my studies. And it's, it's a way of, of thinking myself as an isolated individual who is in competition with everybody else. So I need to look better, achieve more, accomplish more, have more so that I can win the self game. And, um, and usually that's to the detriment of our souls. Mm. So is, yeah. I mean, soul care is really restoring union with Christ mm-hmm. in so many ways. Yeah. Okay. So let's close up with a couple of these questions and this actually is, is, again, something Josh brought up and he was like, what would Jim say about, you know, how to parent, you know, how to lead their children in the way of Christ now? And I even want to further that a little bit because I lead a group of middle school girls and um, I have young kids myself. My oldest is 12. But I mean, I think about your series and I'm like, could we walk through that? I mean, you know, what, what encouragement would you give parents? Like, how do we point them in the way of Christ in Mm. the season of life we're in now? Yeah. Well, it's a huge question. And I I get asked that a lot. Um, I'm super fortunate that my, both of my children are active in their faith. I have a son who's about turned 30 and a daughter who's 20, going to be 23. And they, they, um, their, their faith life is really important to them. 
And some people say, what did you do? And I don't know what we did. I think other than that, we, um, there's no formula, <laughs> there's no real formula or plan. We just, yeah, almost anything I say that's going to produce guilt in someone else is like, did I do that? Right. I think we just lived as authentically as we could with our faith being central. And they see that kids see that. Yeah. And they, they watched us do that. They watched us participate in church. And, um, when it came time with both kids, we didn't force them to do things and um, let them make choices as they got older in how they would conduct their faith life. And, um, mm-hmm. and they're different for my son and my daughter. They have different expressions of their faith life. But um, I, don't, I, I just, yeah, I think one of the things that I did early on with my, my son Jacob uh, was, and I picked this up from Martin Luther, but um, was, was to have the Ten Commandments and, and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, those three things, were things that we prayed every night and oh, wow. we just went through. Yeah. Luther's, that was Luther's way of saying he meditated on, on those as a consistent practice for him. So they were on his wall on my son's wall. And he would later tell me when he got older that that meant a lot to him that um, just taking time to talk through, you know, why is that commandment there? And why do we say that in the apostles creed? And why do we, I don't know that that had a huge impact, but he told me that it was helpful to him. So yeah, I don't know. Well, and what something that I hear though that you're saying that I can see even now, and I don't know if my kids will be walking with Jesus when they're adults, but consistent rhythms really do good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, they really do make a difference. Yeah. Whether again, good or bad, in the sense of I can even see my 12 year old saying some things that we have done, like the Arionic blessing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they just remember that because it's a repetitious thing that we do consistently right. for years. Great point. Um, so whether it's the commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, a passage of scripture, I mean, again, it doesn't mean that your kids are going to walk with Christ, but it is something they remember. Yeah. That has deep Absolutely. value. Yeah. Those 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 faith habits, those, those rituals and practices practicing Sabbath. Both my yep. kids have talked about as they got older, that when we would have Sabbath together, yep. that was fun because we would build forts and have ice cream and do fun things. And um, that sends a message too, like, Hey, yeah. look, mom and dad can check out and be with us and have fun. And I think yep. that had an impact as well. Yeah. Cause every Friday night we do a Shabbat meal and um, oh, kick, nice. off, kick off Sabbath. And I mean, now it's like when I'm tired and I'm kind of like, I don't want to cook tonight, you know, cause we just have a couple special things that we do, not a fancy dinner, none of that, but you know, I mean, it does require me to do some preparation. They're just like, no mom. I mean, we have to do this yes. like, and it hasn't become a legalistic thing. It's just, that's the culture of our family. Yeah. They expect it. They like it. They know it's time that it's just us and they're wanting to invite other people to be experience it and all kinds of things. So they're just really cool. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, last question here. What uh, advice do you have for pastors or teachers who are really facing burnout? Yeah. Oh boy. That's a huge question. And um, so uh, I'm going to tell you a story about the mug that I have that the listeners can't see. That's a picture of Dallas Willard on the mug. What does it say? There's a phrase that says, it it says, you don't have to make it happen. (gasps) My husband would love that mug. Yes. So I got this, I was in Australia. And uh, Dallas had gone to Australia like 10 years before I was there. And he planted some real seeds with a bunch of about 40 pastors. So when I got there and I was there teaching for about 10 days at the end, they were very excited to give me a gift. Oh, 
And, um, you know, when people are excited to give you a gift, your mind goes all over the place. Like, what is this <laughs> going to be? Are they going to give me a car? I don't know. They, they seemed really excited. <laughs> I didn't really think the car, but, um, you know, you don't know. Anyway, so always come, a coffee you, mug, Jim, always a coffee. Always, mug. <laughs> I, I, I should from now on go there because that's what happened. At the end, they hand me this little box and I open it up and it's this mug and it's got Dallas on it. And this, and this phrase, you don't have to make it happen. Mm. And so I, I said to one of the guys afterwards, I said, you know what? Tell me about why that was. So, you guys seem so excited to give me that mug. And they said, when Dallas was with us, uh, and let me just quick on context. So Australia is kind of like Europe in that it's not very churched. Right. So churches, it's a very secular culture. So um, churches have a hard time. Pastors have a hard time, mm. uh, big time there, especially those trying to do spiritual formation because it's not, they're about a decade behind us. You know, we have a lot of writers in formation, right. that pastors of spiritual formation. They're not, that's still new for them. Anyway, what they said was that when Dallas was with them, uh, he kept telling them that phrase. He said, this is going to be, ministry is really hard, but remember, you don't have to make it happen. God is the one that makes it happen. You show up and you do your part, but you don't have to make this happen. And they told me that that was so freeing for them. And mm. so that became a little mantra that they all shared with each other in those intervening 10 years, they would have conversation yeah. and one would say, man, I'm really struggling with burnout. I'm really remember. And they would say, remember what Dallas said, you don't have to make it happen. And so oh, I have this yeah. mug. It's interesting. I, I chose this mug today for today's because uh, I, I love I, it. Picking my mug of the day for, uh, I chose this one. So it's very providential. That's right. Yeah. You don't have to make it happen. Those little mantras say it over and over again. Right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Um, that you really just keep pouring out what God's poured into you because it matters and it is very, very helpful. Thank you for having me, Amber. This has been great fun. Tell Josh, thanks. Great questions. All right. <laughs> Wasn't that a wonderful conversation? What you need to know is that I ended up making a mug for my husband for his birthday, and it's his absolute favorite. So I will always cherish this conversation that I had with Jim. With that said, if you would like your own copy of the Good and Beautiful series, head on over to graceenoughpodcast.com slash good and enter to win your own copy. Or you can go to Ivy Press and use the code ENOUGH22 at checkout to get 30% off and free shipping now through December 20th. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.